to begin with, um, I should just say how really thrilled and honored we are to be here. Uh, several months ago, Philip sent me his book, and I read it, and I was so moved by it, I looked up his phone number <laughs> and called him that night, because there are a lot of books about dyslexia, but this tells the heart of dyslexia. It, it really is dyslexia, so I was just delighted um, to be able to be here today um, and interview Bill. And in your book, you tell so much of what dyslexia is like. And what I'm going to do is just read something you said about what it was like when you were a child. You said, I would lie in bed trying to imagine what it would feel like to be able to read, to be normal, to be normal enough like every other child in the world. And then you said you would stare at the words in the comic book and pretend you were reading them, essentially inventing a boy who was not dyslexic quote, who is normal. I was creating a narrator capable of rewriting my story with a happy ending. So my question for you is, so how does it feel now? It seems your story does have a happy ending. Your poetry collection, however, that was awarded a Pulitzer Prize, is entitled Failure. So what does success feel like? You know, it, it's interesting. I was thinking only tonight how much better I feel about myself when I screw up trying to introduce people or just do things in crowds with people and that I used to have all these concomitant feelings about awkwardness or whatever and I don't seem to anymore. I think I'm not on, I'm gotten off my case that writing this book and understanding that certain things aren't my fault has really, really made a difference. Okay, so there are so many people here tonight, and I bet many of them are worrying about themselves if they're dyslexic or about their dyslexic child and worrying about if their lives would have a happy ending. What would you say to them? Well, I think if there, I had to say reduce everything in the book to one sentence, it's that, and I think you make a great case for this, you both make a very great case, is that there's a great edge, advantage in being dyslexic that um, unfortunately, given our educational system, certainly the way it was in my day, you grow up having to climb this long hill with a blindfold on. But I probably would not have been a writer. Uh, that, the method for my writing school um, comes out of it, uh, out of this. So um, I, that one sentence, which is running on right now, um, would be that I see the advantages of this. And I don't know I if I would easily give them up to be normal. Okay. Along the same lines, one of the things I think in most of our minds tonight is so how do you go from being regarded as the class dummy for whom reading is evasive and anxiety-provoking to being a world-class, award-winning poet. Well, thank you for saying that. Um, true. <laughs> the dummy, the kid at the dummy table is always going to be with me. I know that. It, I can feel that mindset, that, that certain uh, reservoir of emotion that I dip into, that, that I, I more or less have adjusted to that. That, that's, that, and that makes a, a difference. 
I also have learned to forgive myself all the anxiety that um, simple things like reading cause. I mean, I just, it's a given, so I just um, accept it. I, when I want to write and I know that something is making me anxious, the emotion I'm dealing with, I will tolerate the needing to play solitaire on the computer, the walking around the room, until, and knowing that eventually it'll calm down and I'll begin to write. Okay, well, that, that's a really important thing for you to share with everybody. Because uh, as I was reading the book, uh, I found anxiety everywhere. One page after another after another. So I finally started putting in stickies. And I thought I'd count how many times anxiety was mentioned. But I gave up because it was there um, so often. I just want to quote some of the things you wrote about because... It, you wouldn't, you, here you are, this phenomenal poet and writer, and here you, you say, uh, writing a book about it, meaning dyslexia, also means writing one about my anxiety. <laughs> the paralyzing effects of fear and anxiety culminating in a state of panic where my mind would go dark. And you write how anxious it makes you. And I love the sentence, I love everything about books except actually reading them. <laughs> and so... I mean, it seems if you have this much anxiety... One thing I should mention, Phil is not alone. I think to be dyslexic is to be anxious. When you think of all the things that happen to somebody who's dyslexic, so we see it and everybody who knows dyslexia sees it. So how do you, how do you get through it? You said you, you walk around, you do this, you do that, but... You've written seven volumes of poetry. You must have well-worn floors. <laughs> we, we put in slates, so. <laughs> so I slip a lot. <laughs> well, you know, um, I think once you... It, maybe the, the even a better answer to your question, your previous question about finding, having, living in a happier ending is the fact that one of the, maybe if I had to name the one benefit I find most comforting, it's the fact that there's an inborn sense of sympathy for others. And it's helped me as a teacher. I do understand the anxiety that my students suffer, that they go through. And um, knowing this, it helps me. See, there's the thing you're trying to teach, and then there's all the anxiety that leads up to it, mine and theirs, and it helps me move over it or jump over it. And sympathy is, is a real ne necessary faculty in teaching. Phil, it's such a pleasure to be here. Um, your book is wonderful. Very, Thank you. Very, I'm not very emotional, but it was a very emotional book for me. I wondered what you would tell a dyslexic boy or girl today uh, who's struggling and wishing he or she could be just like everyone else? Well, the fact that they're so special, that their minds, that their minds work, are wired differently, and they work in a different way, really makes them special, and that if they could learn to appreciate that, there are real benefits. One of them is a sense of, I mean, there's a lot of compassion that goes along to, with learning to be compassionate for yourself, and then that extends to others. Also, I, I think I, I've been asked in interviews to try to explain how it feels to write and how I could write. And I think the one answer that I've come to that makes more sense than the others is that once you overcome the struggle of anxiety to get to 
the actual act. This is for not me, but everyone with any kind of learning disability or any kind of personal struggle. The thing itself isn't that scary. It's kind of like, you know, there's a 300-pound bully and you get past him and then there's a 200-pound bully. So the 80-pound bully isn't really that scary anymore. And the 80-pound bully is the often the problem or the thing you're taking on. And the writing of poetry, which I know once I can get to it, I could probably figure out at this point. And somehow communicating that to students and to others, whether to young people, is can be very helpful. Light goes on. That the anxiety that they're up against isn't their fault. It isn't like they sat down at a table and figured it out and did something to cause it. And that the smarts you need to develop, the strengths, in order to overcome it, give you an edge, whether it's skating or physics or the arts, that others don't have. I want to look at another part of dyslexia that people sometimes don't think of. People think of it as affecting reading and writing, but it also affects speaking. (laughs) <laughs> and you write very uh, poignantly about your difficulties with word retrieval. You know what you want to say, but it doesn't come out correctly. And just here you said, I would have come up with an acceptable answer were, not, were it not for the anxiety the questions cause me. And, of course, you're a poet, so when you talk about it, you do it beautifully. And you talk about how you will mangle metaphors and cliches Uh, or come out with a medley of confused tenses and names, a labyrinth of self-correction and regretful thoughts. So how does that affect you, and how does that affect your writing poetry? Well, well, one is, uh, I guess, uh, somewhat humorous. Uh, Most people try to avoid cliches. It's my ambition in life to try to get them right. (laughs) And in class, my students always have to fill in the blanks, or they laugh at it, and they're very tolerant. I just can't remember them. You know, it, it's... Uh, I, I'm sorry. I, I got caught up with that, and I forgot the rest of the question. <laughs> <laughs> Which I guess is okay. <laughs> You're in the right I can't place. do it in front of all of you. Where can I do it? <laughs> no, I, I, I guess... The, I think you've answered the question. <laughs> oh, okay. I, I remember what I... You know, I, I part of the... My profession, a living, is to give poetry readings, and I live in fear when I give them, of, uh, because it's happened more than once. Is if I trip up on a word, I, I try to write so that I can pronounce most of the words that I use, and every now and then it's necessary to uh, use one that's a little, that gives me difficulty. I, there's an episode in the book, but it's one of many, that sometimes I get caught on a word and I can't say it. And I, instead of just doing the obvious thing, which is skip it and go to the next one, I can't. I've had a number of occasions where I get stuck and I disconnect. My brain goes blank. I lose any conscious ability to um, move. Now, it, maybe it's only a few moments in my mind. It's, you know, a century but a couple of times it's noticeable, so people afterwards will ask me what's happened. I mean, like, why didn't you just... I remember one organization, one, one person, head of an organization, came up and said, does that happen to you often? And I lied and said, no. 
But um, it's really interesting. Now I know what that is. It's, it's word retrieval, right? right. It's, I mean, even though I've written a word, it's there on the page. I can't, and then when I come upon the word, I can't remember how to pronounce it. And the tricks I use when I'm writing, I can't do in front of people. So there's all these different things that aren't so scary anymore. You know, if I screw up, I screw up. And it really does make a difference knowing why. People like the two of you that have made all of us know why. So it's a great contribution, and it's an honor for me to be with you. Thank you. I should add. One of the things I I wanted to touch on was your... um uh, you, you described the liberation you experienced as an adult when you were diagnosed as dyslexic, and you wrote, it feels as if I'm meeting myself for the first time. Well, what important thing did you learn about yourself? Who were you meeting in contrast to the person who was the old you? Well, it's this um, the sense of, you know, I was actually never diagnosed. It was when my son was diagnosed that I realized that every single symptom was mine and I discussed it with the neuropsychologist and we went over it and clearly this was the this didn't seem necessary to go through the whole actual rigmarole and um, I think it's just this understanding of who I was you know it's a very good question I, I found myself while reading that getting very emotional with certain things that when I prepared I didn't and where does all this emotion come from? And also, I'm a professional reader. I don't let that happen. And I didn't let it happen. I controlled it. But I was like, where does where is the, these pools, these reservoirs of feeling come from? And obviously, they come from the kid, the, the, the kid who is still back there, the young man uh, who um, suffered and didn't understand and was trying to survive, was hanging on by his fingertips. And all that emotion is not part of my present life. I mean, I don't feel that. I mean, it's, uh, the, it's awkward, but I can talk about it. That kid is still there, and you have to learn how to um, deal with him. You speak of the role of ignorance of one's own dyslexia and its consequences. How did this ignorance um, affect you? Oh, it's this cocoon that you live in. You live... Um, uh, in fear that you live around things. You can't do this, so you do this. You can't do this and this, so you do this. It was a kind of trade-off that existence was a way of um, going down... Well, the trial and error, the good part of it is that the trial, endless trial and error to do just basic, normal things were often so difficult that the idea of not getting something right gave me a great tolerance for writing because in writing you're constantly screwing up. You do it wrong a hundred times before you get it right once. Now, not everyone can do it. Not everyone is patient or tolerant for so many mistakes that I find often with my students that um, three or four drafts is as much as they can bear. That's an awful lot of rejection and loss to learn to tolerate. And I can write a hundred before I get. I assume I'll have to write a hundred. Let me move away from you for a moment to um, what you would tell. Lots of we see lots of children and who are um, fearful of having many parents who are fearful of having their child diagnosed as dyslexic. Um, what would you say to those parents? 
Well, I think it's it's knowing makes all the difference in the world, and knowing is is you know on on the path to self acceptance and understanding and learning to deal with it. And I think that um, you know my wife said something to me uh, today, and I'm trying to I lost it, <laughs> but it's it's that it, during a radio how, how do you answer something like that can, can you throw that out i mean there's a better answer do, do you remember what that is oh i'm putting her on this spot there, there's a there's a very good way there's a very good answer to that um many of my good answers come from monica because <laughs> i i tried to answer that on a radio show and it Yes, I just think if you understand that the kind of discovery and self-acceptance that comes from being tested and learning that is goes along with compassion and sympathy that the kids think they're lazy and stupid and they want to avoid it. And the, it's the shortest and most comfortable and healthiest path is discovering, I think. One of the... One of the statements in your book that I really liked was you, you said, I didn't know there was something different about how my brain processed information and language. I believe there was something wrong with me. So, again, how would you reach out to other children growing up uh, who have dyslexia um, to, to, to teach them that there's nothing wrong with them, it's just a glitch in the way their brain processes written and spoken sounds of language? Or that differentness is is good. I mean, there's so many aspects in the society of um, racial inequality, wealth. I mean, there's so many ways that people are made to feel different and therefore inferior, or they feel that themselves. And I think teaching them that they're being different is really uh, not only not a bad thing, but in many ways an advantage and a good thing. Now, easy said and very difficult to do. I understand that. And that's your job. That's what you try to do. And in my case, it took a lifetime. So I'm not a good example. Yeah. I'm not sure of that. I'm not sure about that. Um, one of the parts of your book that um, not surprisingly touched me was when you wrote about your mother. Um, and, you know, clearly she was there for you all the time through so many things. She arranged so you... She hired somebody to do your work so you could study. Um, that's a good mother. So what do you think she would say if she could see you now? One of the things I say that are, um, the same kids that would beat me up or I would, were suddenly cleaning our windows, I would love that. <laughs> <laughs> well, she, she was very proud of me. She, I was an only child, and she wanted me to carry her on. She wanted me to live for both of us in a way and my reading. She loved to learn and wasn't dyslexic and she wanted me to um, to amount to something and I think it was, the thing that was as painful for me as anything else was the disappointment I would see in her eyes being constantly called into school for fighting, being held back, being thrown out of a school. It was just really almost too much for her. And um, uh, I think she would be very proud. It would be a very sweet feeling to imagine her reading this book. And she was a reader, too. She right. loved to read. I think she would love it. Uh, 
So we're talking about all the difficulties dyslexia causes and also how much we know about it so we understand how the different symptoms fit together. But to this day, there are people who claim that dyslexia is not real. That it's just, a, yeah, there are, yeah, I'm sure people here um, could attest to that, that it's a made-up phenomenon, primarily by those who want to gain advantage, for example, by obtaining extra time on tests. What would you say to these people? They're not a few. Uh, it, it mixed company. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that, that kind of ignorance is just so dazzling. It's so um, befuddling. I mean, I can't even imagine. Um, it seems to me so clear-cut that uh, this, I mean, as a parent, you experience uh, how difficult it is to overcome this and, and the, the struggle with it. And, um, and in my own life, I mean, I can't even begin to imagine why someone would want to simplify and reduce such a complicated phenomena, neurological phenomena, to the, kind of, the one kind of cliche I don't think I would want to master. <laughs> okay. I want to talk a little bit about teachers. You mentioned it in, in your reading, and you know, clearly they play such a um, critical role in a child's life. And I'm going to just read a quote of yours here. When addressing the rest of the class, our teacher would turn her back on us as if we weren't worthy of being addressed. And as you said, it was understood by everyone that we had been given up on. So what would you say to that teacher today, or to Mr. Joyce, who told you, that you couldn't be a writer? Well, you know, I, I, before I got college jobs and had books, I made a living by traveling around teaching poetry in, to school kids. And I remember I would love to... T I mean, I, the younger the better. Most people wanted to work with, you know, fifth grade or sixth grade or so older, but I would take them in second grade or third grade and... I love to um, teach them. They would get excited. One of the things I came up with, this is long ago, pretend in a, in a plane that there's a sign that goes on if you're in a plane. I mean, no smoking and fasten your seatbelt. And, and then I would put both down and I would erase it so it would be um, no smoking your seatbelt. And they would get it and laugh. And, of course, that was imaginative. And it was also playing with language. And then I would have them coming up with things like this. And I remember, it happened more than once, but once certainly, a teacher pulled me aside and said, you know, some of the kids that are getting excited here are not that with it. That was her word. That they are not among the smartest in the, and, and um, the, the excitement, she wanted me to um, cool it, that, that the excitement of, the imagination was more than she wanted. She, she was worried that she couldn't control it. And I tried to explain to her that, uh, that it's just possible. I, I didn't know I was dyslexic. I had no idea what I was doing. I was just doing for these kids, I guess, what I had done with myself. That this excitement, that the excitement of being creative was a blessing and that even kids, and I was probably thinking of myself, that even kids that aren't, that appear to be that smart could have wonderful imaginations. And that this is something that they maybe even need more. 
I don't think I convinced her of anything. But they were worried about the excitement that the imagination fostered in these kids. That's worrisome. So, Phil, if you could create a better world for dyslexics, what would that be like? And what would top the list of things you would change? Well, the kids would, I think it makes all the difference in the world. Once you know that you have this thing that isn't your fault, that it doesn't really have to stand in your way, and there are even all kinds of advantages. I think the earlier you get to kids, and once they have that, I mean, they can go on to do marvelous things. You know, Yates was dyslexic. And his father pulled him out of school because Yates embarrassed his father, who was a big deal in Dublin. And he didn't want everyone to know what a stupid kid he had. So he homeschooled him. And he homeschooled him by yelling at him when he couldn't learn how to read. He thought it was lazy. He thought it was slow. And he, I don't know if it ever was physical. Some accounts indicate that. W.B. Yeats, not a bad poet. <laughs> So can kids, I mean, I'm sure he grew up with that idea of himself as someone who deserved to be yelled at. If you could take that away from, erase that, that would be terrific. So you look around here tonight, and you see so many people here to hear you, to hear about your life as described in your wonderfully moving memoir. So who, as you say, believe you may have something of value to say uh, to, the man, to the many others who struggle with dyslexia? So what are you thinking? What's in your heart and mind now? Well, it's a very satisfying feeling. There's, there's a lot of pleasure. I feel like I'm at home. No, that's nice. I think I'm going to ask you one last uh, question that I'm interested in. I'm sure, I hope, I think the rest of the audience would be, you write in, you teach writing in a special way. And I was really struck because, you know, everybody Googles everything. When I Googled your writer studio, the New York Times said it was the most personal of, of writing studios. So say a few words about how you teach writing and about your writer studio. Well, I discovered while writing the book that the method, which I didn't know at the time, comes right out of how I taught myself how to read. I created this little boy who didn't have my problems. And through him, I tried to imagine what it would feel like to be able to read, to not be me, to not have this burden. And once I became him and tried to imagine the pleasure, I was moving toward actually reading. And that is how I taught myself how to read. And one, when I started to teach in college and I was teaching people how to read, I mean to write, I realized that there were all kinds of emotional difficulties and anxieties and whatever, and that to teach persona writing, the same thing. I didn't know I was doing the same thing, but that if they could invent a character who didn't have their own misgivings, who could perhaps tell their story from an angle or a point of view that um, they, that would add something to that story, it would free them. And I would always have success in doing it. So I experimented with, over the next 30 years. <laughs> Trial and error. <laughs> Thank you very much. I wanted to know if anybody has questions. We'll take questions for the, from the audience for five, ten minutes. Are there students here from the Churchill School? Hi. 
Um, I have two questions. Um, my first one is when you were talking about dyslexia, you um, focused more on like writing and reading, which are more like humanities subjects. Did it affect your math at all? Yes. I mean, uh, the reference I made to thinking multiplication tables meant many tables. I couldn't, yes. I, in my case, I just quit. I mean, I, because I couldn't even hear what the teacher was saying. And I couldn't, I, I was already so bad at everything, I never could learn anything. Anything. Math or anything. I mean, I realized that they were so relieved to get rid of me and asked me to go to the other school because it, it was right across the board. I didn't, I would walk out of class whenever I felt like it because I couldn't bear to be in class. I would play hooky from school. So no, it was math. I'm not very good at math. My second question is more for you. You were saying that part of dyslexia is also about speaking, and I was wondering if that affects the rate that like children learn how to speak in general from like when they're babies. I'm, I'm sure it does, because very often you find a history of delayed speech, and also when children are very young, even before they can read, they have trouble learning or appreciating, for example, rhymes. Because if you're dyslexic, you have difficulty, your basic difficulty is getting to the individual sounds of spoken words and being able to pull apart a spoken word. And the first time you really have to do that publicly is when you hear a rhymes, you know that cat, hat, and sat uh, are rhymes. But oral, the problems in spoken language are really, um, can be profound and it's often the combination of that and the anxiety uh, that feed on one another. So just as Phil was explaining, uh, people have great difficulties often retrieving the word, and where it really hurts people is sometimes they have to take an oral examination, uh, being put on the spot, and I'm seeing a few nods, and saying, tell me this. And what the nice thing is, is that we really understand it, and I'll just tell you really, really quickly. What we understand now is if you're dyslexic, and what we know in order to say a word is you get the idea in your head. No problem if you're dyslexic. And you actually, I hate to use jargon, but I'll use it a little, activate the word in your brain. But in order to utter the word, to say it, you have to transform it into the sounds because that's what programs your lips and tongue to say the word. And that's where dyslexics have a problem. So you can know it and be really smart, but it won't come out of your mouth. And that's too bad because sometimes we judge people on how glib they are. Um, I think it's hard we judge people by how glib they are, and very often if you're dyslexic, you're not glib. Apart from learning your disability quite late in life, were there any people other than yourself, because you sound very self-taught, that you can think back on that may have helped you early on in your life um, help you deal with what you've dealt with over those well, that's a good question. Um, boy, I would like to come up with one. <laughs> uh, oh, my mother, you, you mean other than a parent, probably, like a teacher. And um, You know, there was one English teacher at this one high school um, who kind of was, I, I, no, I, I envy, I, I, I read... I read all the time of, of writers who always have an English teacher or someone. I mean, when I went to college, I 
got lucky. I was suddenly a writer, and I was kind of good at it. And I would have professors who would take me under their wings, and I really was lucky. And then I would be adopted I, um, by all kinds of writers and people. Is that what you mean? Well, yes. When I was, by the time I went to college, I was a writer. And I guess I was a good one. So I got special attention, and that helped me. You know, maybe a better answer to that is um, I started to paint and draw. For me, my imagination was a great place to escape from the, all the anxiety and the disapproval of my life. So I had to live in my head anyway. As an only child, I was alone. So art became a way of making myself feel better. My imagination was a place of comfort. And so it led to being an artist and then writing. And that gave me a kind of community. I suddenly a bond with others who wanted to do that. I probably survived because of that. I don't know if I would have otherwise. I, I think that it's very important for kids who struggle in anything to find a kind of something that they, a direction that they will comfort them. Thank you. What was the turning point for you? I, you? You said you taught yourself to read. At what point were you able to get to that? Like, what do you think was the turning point? You mean before I knew I was dyslexic? And, um, right. Uh, I think before, the art. I think that I needed to find uh, both an escape from a reality that... Um, wasn't very kind or sympathetic and that was reflecting uh, a me that I didn't like. And I, then I created um, uh, a reality that I was more comfortable with, a me that I did like, and that was art. I think it's not surprising that a lot of dyslexics, Yeats, Fitzgerald, find their way into arts and science and something that is great, great comfort to them. And to realize that that's potential for them is very important. So did you come to art on your own, or did your mother encourage it? I, I was in a bookstore as a kid at Sibley's department store, and I opened up a book of um, Van Gogh's paintings, and I fell in love. I thought, oh, my God, God, how is this humanly possible? And I wanted it, I liked the feeling, all that emotion, all that emotion. Phil, is a, on, the, on the same note, as, as a poet, because our brains are wired differently, having a similar, a similar um, circumstance, do you feel that you came to cr at creative problems from a different angle, perhaps had new insights because your work is so profoundly insightful, that now looking back in retrospect, it was one of the gifts, perhaps, that the dyslexia gave you a new way of, of looking at the world, and then you were able to create that in your poetry? You know, yes. I mean, uh, uh, I, I think that part of it is, you know, the, the fact that there's so much trial and error and that once I get to the problem itself, there's a kind of confidence and relief almost. That's a different way of looking at the problem. Um, I, I think that there's a need in me to exhaust all the possibilities of anything of um, problem solving and staying with a poem and I, even when it's okay it's not good enough because I think that maybe there's a different way of looking at things and sometimes I force myself 
to a place where I'm seeing something that for me is a new way of looking at it. And maybe that is for some others too. And um, since we're ending on this note, let me just add one thing that occurred to me. I think one's relationship with one's vulnerability is a very delicate and precious relationship. Most people try to, I think, generalizations, hide, disguise that vulnerability because it makes them feel awkward and vulnerable. And in doing that, you, I think, diminish a great source of power. That the vulnerability is, and certainly when you're dyslexic, you're very, very vulnerable. So I think my dyslexia helped me deal with that too. I don't mind talking about all my awkwardnesses and vulnerabilities. I think I've just, it, once I've accepted them, it's fine. And I think that might add something to my work too.